Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Atlas Society's 13th episode of the Atlas Society Ask. Good thing we are objectivists and we're not superstitious. Um, today, we are joined by the Atlas Society's artist in residence, my very dear friend, Michael Newberry. And also, this is a double hitter, the Atlas Society's senior scholar, Stephen Hicks. And before I even get into um, introducing our guests, I want to remind all of you who are joining us on Zoom, and thank you for that, by the way, we've had a record uh, registration. And those of you who are watching us live on Facebook, to please ask your questions of Dr. Hicks and Michael Newberry. Just type them into the Zoom comment section, or uh, you can just go ahead and type them in right there on Facebook. So, um, Michael, uh, is, as I mentioned, the Atlas Society's very own artist in residence. He is an American neo-romanticist. Uh, he's based in Idlewild, California. Started painting at 11 years old and sold his first painting at 17. Now, having been a figurative painter for 52 years, uh, you don't look a day over 40, darling. Um, he is working on his very first book, evolution through art. He's also a frequent blogger at the Atlas Society. Uh, Michael is joined today by the Atlas Society's senior scholar, Dr. Stephen Hicks, who is a professor of philosophy at Rockford University. He is also the director of the Center for Ethics and Entrepreneurship. Professor Hicks has written numerous books, including the leading book on postmodernism, explaining postmodernism. He also wrote the introduction to our pocket guide to postmodernism, uh, which I highly, highly recommend. Michael, Stephen, welcome again. Thanks for joining us. Hey, honored to be Thank on you, this with Michael. Um, so, Michael, you have talked about two of the major influences in your life being Rembrandt and Ayn Rand. Tell us how you discovered them and a little bit about how they influence your work today. Um, I, I was with my grandmother walking on a main street in La Jolla and we passed a bookstore, a Warwick's bookstore. And in the bookstore window was a huge book and on the cover of the book was a portrait of a woman's face. And I was transfixed. Um, her eyes had this kind of glossy little bit of almost about to cry, but of complete empathy, love and empathy. And I remember the shadows kind of moving around her earlobe where her earring was. And I was transfixed. I had no idea about time or space or where I was. I was just inside this painting. And it must have been 10 or 15 minutes later, my grandmother had gently walked away. She had walked over to the next window. And I woke up, I realized I was in daytime, right in La Jolla. And I looked over and she looked at me with a really strange expression on her face. But then she turned back to the window, as, acting as if she was studying something in the window. And I could go ahead and keep looking at this painting. And I remember the, the dollar sign, $65 for this book. And on my 12th birthday, I got the book as a present from my grandmother. Mm -hmm. And it was the complete works of Rembrandt. And so every night I poured over that book going, wow, this is so magical. How did he do this? 
Um, so that has been, and I still feel the same way. A little less magical because I've really worked hard to understand what he was doing. But um, I feel the same uh, love for his work now as then. And then when I was 20, um, I had made up my mind to become an artist. I quit USC a full scholarship at tennis. We were NCAA champions. I quit to pursue art. I was living in Holland and my sister Janet, who was a world-class tennis player with the Virginia Slims said, you've got to read this book. And I, I adored my sister and I got the book and I thought, it's all about business. What am I doing reading at Le Shrugged? <laughs> and I went on and about a hundred pages into it, everything clicked. I just went, wow, what, what an interesting person Dagny is. And these scenes are really incredible. And I also, I also came away with Ayn Rand respected artists and that came through in the book. And I felt like someone was patting me on the back saying, don't worry about anything. You've got the talent, you've got the goods, just keep going. And it was the first time I'd ever met anyone and her virtually through her work. It was the first time I met anyone who had that kind of matched my passion of the feeling for Rembrandt. So I could feel that she had the same respect for artists. And that fueled me for decades. <laughs> yeah. Of course, she, she was a great line. artist in her own right. Yeah. Yes. I wanted to jump in and just ask Michael uh, about uh, this being 11 years old and transfixed by the Rembrandt portrait in the, in the window. Uh, up until that point, had you some interest in art? Did you draw? Did you already like looking at other artworks or just you know, looking at the world and studying it carefully? Or was this really a, 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 kind of a hugely transformative moment for you? Um, well, it was definitely transformative, uh, 100%. But my mom, my mom did crafts with my brothers and sisters. She would do things like get out our pencils and our colored stuff. And she would say, what color is number five? Mm. You know, so I kind of think I developed synergy off of a little bit of my craziness of my mother. Yeah. But um, it, uh, we, had time to, we had time to do crafts. So Christmas was a big thing, making ornaments and doing all that stuff. Um, parents have thought about buying a piano because we went to a party and I was transfixed by the piano. So I must have been about 10. And so I was kind of looking out for something and mm. the Rembrandt definitely hit me like a ton of bricks. And yeah. I think it was the most intense emotion I've ever experienced wow. of anything. Yeah. Now the, we've come from Rembrandt to the, the state of, uh, of postmodern art. Um, and both of you have spent a lot of time writing about um, and studying postmodernism, what has been uh, the impact of postmodernism on artistic expression? Hmm. Well, there's a huge question for both of us, huh? <laughs> yes. Well, I, you know, I guess I'll jump in on this one. Yeah, I think there's a, you know, two routes to postmodernism in art. I think one of them is more 
philosophical and one is more psychological. Uh, if we kind of take for granted that postmodernism is a kind of skeptical, subjectivized, you know, cynical, jaded, and then if you really push it, ultimately nihilistic uh, outlook and an expression on the world, I think that people can talk themselves into postmodernism. You know, if you're a smart person and you look at all of the arguments for positive answers to questions, but you don't think they work, and then you get to uh, do more study and you look at the undercutting negative arguments and you become intellectually convinced, I think that can take you a long way toward being a postmodernist. But I think for the most part, uh, uh, you know, if you have a healthy underlying psychology, you just don't be too intellectual about things. You just get on with your life and you, uh, you, uh, you grope your way through. So I think uh, something more needs to be added to people who dedicate their careers to artistic media, but they seem intentionally devoted to subverting and sabotaging, uh, you know, literally to the point of throwing urine and feces on uh, pre-existing works and, and debasing themselves in various ways. So I think in addition to those purely philosophical or intellectual negativities, you do have to add something psychological uh, to, to, to explain the vehemence. So I've got some ideas on that we can get to in a little while, but I don't want to dominate uh, too not much negativity too quickly. And I also want to hear what Michael <laughs> has to say on this question. Yes. Well, uh, I, I was kind of brought up uh, in college in fine art in postmodern classes. And that's before I read Ayn Rand. So this is like 17, 18, 19 years old. I was saturated with it. And my instincts were that something is wrong with these people, my teachers. Uh, I could kind of smell that they weren't, they didn't have a lot of confidence and they didn't have, they didn't, you know, from tennis, I got to see world-class tennis players. My, my experience with tennis from a tennis family and my sister being so good. And these people just didn't have it. They didn't have the truth on their side or the psychological stuff. So I was skeptical, but uh, very interesting. I went in there to learn everything I could about it. So I didn't rebel. I knew that I had my own psyche separate from theirs, that whatever they had to say wasn't going to harm me or affect me. So I learned everything I could about postmodernism from them. And it's, it's just being clever and sabotaging yeah. something. So yeah. if you think of a painting, it's like, well, how can I sabotage a painting? Well, you, you put up the stretcher bars where the canvas wraps around, you take off the canvas and you leave the bars and you put it up on the, on the wall. So that was one of my projects. So you do anything you can to kind of sabotage the idea of what real painting is. And some people have a mindset where they can do it. Like me, I have, I have no trouble doing it. But in the back of my mind, I knew I was protecting my soul. I was just learning everything I could from my teachers. Yeah. One thing that we uh, should be careful about on the outset is uh, you know, if we take seriously the idea that art is about expressing what is deepest in your psyche, your, your view on life, your passion on life, what you want to experience perceptually, uh, that should leave open the possibility that much of what goes on in 
the modern art world and or the postmodern art world is genuine art, that it really is a metaphysical expression of some deep stuff going on inside those people. But just if that what's going on deeply inside you is some pretty negative stuff, it should come out consistently in form and in content negatively. Um, so initially, I would want to leave open the idea that they are, in fact, artists. Um, and, and then we would need to step back and say, where's the boundary between art and not art? But within the category of art, we should expect there to be very nihilistic strains of art, as well as very romantic, very realistic, very fantastical strains and so forth. Uh, so I do want to put a speculation out to Michael because he, uh, uh, he raises a, a psychological point that it wasn't uh, that there was something wrong with these people and that your instincts or your, your deepest self rebelled and that you could uh, put what they were saying to you or trying to teach you in a kind of uh, insulated box and protect yourself from it. You didn't let it go all the way inside. Um, that one of the, the, the things that leads people to become nihilists in general, and they can become nihilists politically, nihilists in religion, nihilists in their romantic lives, as well as being nihilists in their, is their, in their, um, in their artistic lives, is kind of a, that you start off as someone who has ideals and values and a certain amount of passion toward those, but you experience a very devastating, crushing disappointment or outright failure in that area. And then the well-worn path is to flip over to the opposite of that. Uh, and as much as you loved a certain value, you now become its enemy. So if you think, you know, for example, I'm, you know, we've all seen the movies, maybe we've gone through this personally. You can take two people who really did genuinely love each other and they would have done anything for each other and they became married but then two years later it's you know the war of the roses uh, both the historical and the and the movie version of it that uh, in some sense that supremely important relationship to them was such a crushing disappointment and there is so much pain that they become uh, absolutely destructive and nihilistic with respect to that particular person and relationships in general. So the most cynical and destructive people are the ones who were first attracted to that zone. So to draw the analogy to art, uh, an explanation would be that you've got young people who love art and they want to be the next Michelangelo, the next Rembrandt, the next person to write the great American novel and they set out, but at a certain point, their self-doubts or the feedback that they are getting or their, their existential failure to make a career disappoints them so deeply that they recoil to the opposite end and become cynical, jaded, and nihilistic. But they're still in the art world, and so they want to, so to speak, to destroy the art world from inside. So that's a hypothesis, uh, and it's a more psychological hypothesis than a philosophical one. I wanted to ask Michael what his uh, thoughts are in reaction to that, uh, given the intense psychological nature of being an artist. Oh, we might have lost Michael for a moment. Oh well, well we will we will get him back. He'll be back. Um, we'll put be a pause back, Michael. Great. 
Um, well, and I want to also remind all of those who are watching us to ask your questions um, on the Facebook Live or type them into the chat um, in Zoom because this is a really extraordinary privilege to have our uh, senior scholar and our artist in residence here with us um, in the same webinar. So, um, so one of the, the uh, things that I, to kind of tee off of your last question, Stephen, is whether there are aspects, I mean, you talked about art and that we shouldn't be too quick to say this, this isn't art. Ayn Rand talked about art as a recreation of reality according to the artist's values. And some of those values can be great, you know, it can be that the universe is benevolent, that things are possible, uh, like in the wonderful Icarus Landing that um, that Michael has painted that I'm honored to have in my home, uh, or your values can be messed up, you know, they, they can be cynical. Uh, you, you, you could have sort of a, not a value, but an anti-value of envy, which is hatred, what Ayn Rand called the hatred of the good for being good. And then that would express itself uh, in, in your art, in your recreation. Um, do you find a strain of, of envy in the, uh, the postmodern artwork? Um, well, I do. Um, in, in many cases in modernist art and postmodernist art, what you find is, uh, you know, one of the themes is that everything is social representation or social construction and, and kind of objective reality drops away. And then one of the substrains is artists then being aware of the social history of art and what then becomes legitimate subject matter is you can comment on other artists and other artworks because that's part of the, the social history. I mean, you're not necessarily trying to make metaphysical claims about reality, God, human nature, and, and objective values and so on. So one of the, the sub-themes is the persistent taking of an earlier artist's work and then doing something to it. And uh, the envy point to connect to that is that Envy is a negative, destructive emotion. And what we find is the great works from art history that are selected for editorial work, for alteration, the editorial alterations are never in a positive direction. It's always in a diminishment direction. So examples of this would be uh, you know, someone like um, uh, Dali, right, taking the Mona Lisa and then doing a, a version of the Mona Lisa, then doing a graffiti-like mustache and, and goatee type of beard on it. So the way you know, someone out on the street right, would, uh, would, would do graffiti on the walls, or you might go through a beauty magazine and, and deface it by adding the, the cartoonish. Okay, so that's then to say, we've got this great artistic achievement, but I'm going to bring it down right, a peg or two. Other examples, uh, you know, I think Picasso at his, his parties would, uh, you know, he had all sorts of art books and so on. He would invite friends and fellow artists and in, uh, you know, very expensive art reproductions, they would tear out a page of some great painting and he would point it, put it on the wall and then everybody would be given darts uh, and you would use that as a, as a dartboard. Or Nicky <laughs> St. Fowl, right? Um, you know, would take uh, the, the, uh, the, the Venus de Milo, that, that classical Greek uh, 
statue of you know an idealized feminine beauty and she made a paper mache cast of it and filled the inside of it it was left hollow with um with the balloons filled with red paint and black paint and so forth. And then as part of her performance art, uh, she would stand at a certain distance with a rifle. I think it was you know, not a high powered rifle, but she would shoot bullets, real bullets into this uh, reproduction of the Venus de Milo to destroy it. And then of course, all this black and red paint comes spattering out and so forth. So that strikes me as somewhere in the area of, of envy. You know, what you're saying is, I want to be an artist and that really matters to me, but you know art history has all of these giants in it and you're not going to live up to that standard. So your reaction rather than saying, well, okay, maybe I'm just going to be a very good artist by my own lights and celebrate the, uh, the, the greatness, uh, something turns and you want to be destructive. And I think it's a kind of envy. They've done something that I don't think I can achieve. And I kind of hate myself for that, but I also hate them for showing me up for the second or third rater that I am. So yeah, absolutely. Well, it's, it's interesting too, what you're talking about, Stephen, is um, that th this negative, envious, postmodernist take on art, which really is a heroic achievement, uh, that it's very derivative, you know, mm -hmm. and that it's only, the only power it has is by taking something that somebody else created, it's sort of a parasitical um, power, you know, that, that, that is without the great artwork that their derivative postmodern anti-art wouldn't even be possible. That's right. No, I think that's, that's a perceptive remark. Um, I think in one sense, derivative is fine. I mean, you know, being completely original and being completely authentic and being unique, that's a challenge right, for each of us. But at the same time, we do learn from the previous giants and you know, we stand on their shoulders in order to see farther and all of that. As long as you're doing that genuinely and, uh, and respectfully, I think uh, the parasitical part of what you were saying is the uh, the bad kind obviously where you recognize you don't have anything to add of value even in the direction of a minor improvement and so you uh, you would literally want to suck the blood or suck the life or suck the genuine meaning out of whatever it is that you're being derivative of well Welcome speaking of beautiful beautiful original artwork michael can you tell us a little bit about the the art you're in, you're in your studio and tell us about what what we're seeing in uh, your background there. You're asking me? Yes, yeah. darling. I, I've been going in and out. I live behind a granite outcrop. Taquit's rock is this 4,000 foot rock and I live behind it. So sometimes I go in and out. Is, I have is my uh, Howard work in your quarry? <laughs> Can I come by? And yes, yes. Uh, Promethea is, um, uh, a painting in the background, and then uh, I have um, Venus of the planets of uh, 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 where no one has gone before. And in my, what I'm looking at right now is this. That mm. one, I love that one. I'm, I have to say. So that is my, my Olympia, and uh, it's a takeoff on Manet's Olympia. And Manet's Olympia has a, 
uh, a very modern woman uh, naked on a, a, a kind of reclining on a lounge couch. And in his painting, she has a black servant. And I just got rid of that completely. I said, that's not going to work. And my experience with people that are very successful, they do a lot of work themselves. They don't mind cleaning the toilets and doing stuff. If, 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 if no one's around, they'll do the work. And so I thought, well, a high-powered person doesn't really need a servant, not in today's time. And uh, so, uh, and then I did a sci-fi of her under the water. So her home was in this um, new environment. And I liked the idea that the sharks and the fishes were swimming outside and that she was sitting pretty in kind of command of the entire space. Mm. So it's uh, sci-fi, it's also very realistic and they are having hotel rooms now underwater. You can mm. go and have a hotel room for like $5,000 <laughs> a night. <laughs> And um, I like the integration of the curve of the windows with the curve of the chair and the curve of her body. So to me, that was a nice visual integration. Yeah, it's, um, we were talking before about things that are derivative or that have a reference to a previous work of art that it's not always necessarily um, something negative. I mean, in this case, Michael, you are kind of paying homage to Manet and to the, right. the, the genre that um, that he uh, worked in, and and, and I believe uh, and I believe adding to it, because um, the more I looked at that painting, the more I couldn't, I really didn't like that he had a black servant, mm -hmm. and it's not just a modern taste thing. It was that that's. That just seems like he knew that it was someone being a servant to this woman, but it could have been anyone, but he chose a black woman. And I, I just thought that that's not very universal for, for a benevolent feeling. So I was looking also, how could I take this idea and make it my own? So you're right about that, that about having your knowledge of history and then you can do that. But that's also the same for Ayn Rand with like uh, art as an end in itself and picking that up from Aristotle. So his eudaimonia and that she picked up that this state of happiness is an end in itself. It doesn't owe anything to any, any other thing. There's not a thereafter. It's just to experience that moment. And in reading him and researching him for my book, I got to see clearly where she got that idea from. And so that's the same kind of idea that you learn from your history, you learn from your mistakes, and then you can put it together in your own neat package. One of the things that I also really loved about that painting and, and working with you on it, and people can't tell that um, I was the subject for that painting, uh, was, um, you know, when you talk about that the original wasn't connecting with you, that, that you chose. I mean, it just aside from the incredible colors and the, um, the potency of those colors, they're, they're so alive, but you chose this James Bond, you know, and I used to always love James Bond. It's this, this uh, 
this sci-fi backdrop of something that, again, you're, what you were expressing on that level of the painting was, wow, look, it's possible that we could create, that there could be a, a universe where we would have um, glass walls and you'd have comfort inside and you could have sharks swimming outside. And then I don't think I ever even told you till after you completed the painting that, and it's a coincidence, right? We're not mystics here, but I had been having um, recurring dreams. I, you know, my house is a glass house that I had had dreams that there was water outside my house and that there was um, sharks swimming around my house. Uh, so then, I, then it was like, actually went from being in my dream to being in a painting. In, in my painting, yes. Maybe I felt the same thing when I was, you know, visiting your house and seeing the environment, because it feels like you're overhanging the ocean. It feels yeah. like you're right on top of the ocean. Yeah. But that dovetails really well with, I think Ayn Rand's greatest question to aesthetics is the concept that uh, art is a concrete. So, it's something that you can look at like you're looking at a person or you're looking at a room. You're in a room, you can see it. Well, an artwork does the same thing. It's that you're looking at this thing, but where it's different, instead of the artwork just being reality, the artwork represents monumental, vast abstractions that deal with all of humanity as at least channeled through the artist. So the artist is feeling things, they're seeing things and they're, um, thinking about stuff and when you put all that together you can use your imagination to send people to mars or send them to jupiter and if you can make it feel real and then someone is standing in front of that painting looking at it it's like oh my god we can do this i've had a vision in my mind about exploring space or something i can actually keep going in that direction I'm getting goosebumps. <laughs> but Ayn Rand made that connection where um, Aristotle didn't and Kant didn't, but she made that connection that it's how it fuels our, our whole mental um, framework, our state of being, how an artwork can just feel so real because it's literally right before your nose. And that to me is, uh, in all the research I've done, that is really a brilliant, brilliant insight into, into aesthetics. Speaking, yeah, speaking of aesthetics, I'd love to, to get to, to Kant's um, vision of the sublime. And I, this is a question I get constantly um, on my Instagram takeovers for the Atlas Society. And I'm like, oh gosh, you know, where is Stephen or where is Michael Newberry uh, when I need them? So, and I can't really talk about Kant in a, a 30, you know, second clip. So now that we have the time, can can you unravel that a little bit for us, Stephen? Uh, you want me to take it on first? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, your wait, thoughts wait, wait. on, on uh, either of you, Kant's sort well, of anti-Aristotelian um, view of beauty and the sublime. Yeah. Why don't I take it on first, Stephen? Because I okay. might fade out. You want to you uh, start with? You want to start with Burke, or uh, just jump right into Kant? Well, one of the things that I'm in the research that I'm seeing is that beauty. They both discuss, and and, and the discussion is beauty and the sublime, and beauty is uh, 
it's an attribute of a thing or beauty is the thing. So with Aristotle, when he talks about it, it's about proportion and goodness. It's the attributes of, of like a healthy athlete, an athlete that wins the Olympics, their body uh, becomes beautiful because it serves a purpose so well. And, uh, and then with Aristotle, the state of the Udomania is a state of a goal that you want to reach of your blissfulness or happiness, an ideal state, and how you work towards, uh, towards experiencing that kind of like as a process. And with Kant, he was saying that beauty is not the resolution of health, uh, that uh, beauty is not uh, have a concept of what the ideal of it is. It's not that. It's um, not about goodness. It's not, uh, it, it's not about symmetry. And so mostly in his mature work in the critique of judgment, he talks about it as what it's not, but he's basically saying, it's not anything that Aristotle said. <laughs> it's not that, it's not this, it's not that. It goes on and on and on. And then um, for Aristotle, the, the state of happiness is what we understand happiness to be. Feeling in love, feeling happy with your work, feeling pride that you did a good job. Um, having a moment where a, a landscape is so beautiful or a hike is fantastic. And Kant goes through and says, it's not that, it's not a form, it's not something that is based on beauty or anything else. It's just something in your mind that's terrifying. So he disconnects actually both from the senses. So he disconnects them from perception. And when you disconnect from perception, you're, you're very dangerously close to going insane. So when you no longer look at reality or you no longer confirm things by reality, like a scientist or a good artist, and if you're, if you're an idea person, if you no longer connect the ideas to things that people know and can perceive and feel, you're going off in just this mental, a mental universe. And that's what Kant did with the sublime. And he associated it with really negative, nasty experiences, violence to your imagination, um, disgust, um, feeling inadequate. He discusses these attributes around it. And um, I have a suspicion that it's because he stepped away from perception. Mm. He untethered. Stephen, you want to jump in there? Yeah, I think all of that is uh, is very well said. Uh, as a as a philosopher, I would uh, I'll try, try to put a little more analytical framework on on what Michael is is saying. So, if we start from the idea that uh, art is so powerful because it pushes all of our uh, most important psychological buttons, it makes us feel strong emotions. So we have to understand what's the nature of emotions and what, what's, power, what's, what's capable of uh, evoking powerful emotions in us. It stimulates our, our minds. We find ourselves thinking about themes and values and, and uh, you know, broader philosophical things about the nature of the world. 
So how is it that art is able to stimulate such deep and powerful broad thinking in us as well as the, the emotions? But then of course, art is also importantly uh, uh, sensuous, that it pushes our uh, sensory buttons, uh, stimulates our ears, our eyes, and particularly in the case, I think, of good sculpture, you want to reach out and touch it and, and caress it. And music makes you want to move your, your body and so on. So the analytical framework then is to say, art is powerful because it is able to stimulate us powerfully, perceptually, intellectually, and emotionally. So then, and, and of course, it, it integrates all of those in, uh, in the, the most powerful right, of artworks. But then the question is going to be, uh, if you're philosophical, what do you think about perception? And one of the things, of course, we know is there are long philosophical traditions that reach uh, skeptical conclusions about the senses. They don't put us in contact with reality. They don't give us accurate information about reality. Perhaps they are distorting, right? Or maybe they just give you a subjective reality that's subject to all sorts of hallucinatory and, and dream states and so forth. So you can go in the direction of thinking that sensation is either irrelevant to true knowledge or it's a distorting distraction uh, of some sort. And then if you think it's a distorting distraction uh, and you're an artist, then that's what you will want to explore. And so you will get into kind of weird perceptual artist, but the artist really thinks that he is doing something, something significant. Or, and I think this is closer to what Michael was talking about, someone like Kant, who is much more in a rationalist technical framework, that is to say, discounting the importance of perceptual information to real knowledge, uh, you then get to the position where you want to say, if you are going to have genuine knowledge uh, abstract, rational knowledge, you have to abandon some sort of perceptual phenomenal reality. So that then will uh, have the implication that if you are going to be a serious artist and you're interested in painting landscapes or realistic portraits of people, that you're really uh, dealing with trivial stuff because that's just perceptual representation and that's not very important. It's going to be these abstracted ideas in your head, that's the important thing. And on my reading, that's the, the great grandfather position that eventually leads to conceptual art in the 20th century where quite explicitly the artists are saying the perceptual embodiment is completely irrelevant or not the point. Uh, at most, a perceptual object will just stimulate certain sorts of abstract ideas and so on. Now the other part, that's a, the, not just the intellectual stuff, but the perceptual stuff that Michael was mentioning, you find this both in Burke and in Kant in their sublime. And I think that initially they're quite rightly saying that, you know, there are a lot of painting is kind of, uh, you know, about things that are pretty uh, uh, and, and, and about, you know, things that are lovely, but a lot of it is kind of repetitive. I mean, how many, you know, uh, you know pretty girls can you look at? Well. <laughs> maybe an infinite number, but in art history, you get to the point where you say, okay, we've already been there, done that, or this is another lovely landscape, right? Or look at this majestic horse, how nice, right? And so on. So the idea then is that beauty is territory that has been well worked over. And many of the artists of the 1700s are starting to say, we need to have a, a wider emotional range and we need to admit 
powerfully negative emotions, including emotions of shock and horror and desperation and, 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 and early nihilism and so on. And, and so all of that is fine to say that we don't want to say that the emotional range of art needs to be uh, ahead of time limited only to certain positive emotions. Art should be about the full human experience. And if we're going to have the fullest possible human experience, uh, these are things that are going to shake us to our core for positive and for negative. So maybe part of the movement is a corrective that we need to start exploring the negative more, more strikingly. But that's not uh, quite a full account of what's going on in Burke and in Kant, because what they do want to argue is that it really is a superficial, lower level emotional reaction to the world if you stay with this kind of childlike, benevolent view of the world. Uh, that really life uh, uh, is about fear, it's about danger, it's about awareness of death, it's about being aware of uh, forces beyond your control that can overwhelm you. And at this point, it becomes a personal psychological and philosophical statement or confession on the part of Burke or, 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 uh, and Kant to say that really the things that evoke the strongest emotions in them as individuals are these horrific, terrific, overwhelming sense of your own dissolution and destruction emotions. Uh, and that if we are then going to talk about the highest art, it should be the highest art that's evoking the strongest emotions. And their judgment call is that it's precisely those emotions. So part of them, their official aesthetic apparatus is to relegate anything that's positive, beautiful, merely pretty to a lower level status. That at most is beautiful. The sublime has to, by definition, be things that are overwhelming, are beyond our minds, emotions, capacity to, to, to handle it. We just have our sense of our own uh, impending doom, dissolution, destruction, and, and so forth. So uh, some of that is philosophical, some of that is psychological, but I think Michael is quite right to say that in, in both cases, uh, the counterpoint to them is Aristotle, who both philosophically had a more benevolent, optimistic outlook, uh, nothing on the scale, I think, of, of, kind of Rand's uh, uh, you know, extraordinarily powerful romanticism, but also the idea that uh, the perceptions, the emotions, and, the, and our reason need all to work together in a harmonious fashion that art should be concerned with all of them. And then on top of that, predominantly in a eudaimonistic or positive direction. Great. And we've got Michael back and we've got some, some great questions. Uh, we still have about hmm, a little less than 20 minutes. So you have time to um, type your questions and if, if possible, make them pithy, pithy. We want pithy questions. They're a lot easier for me to be able to scan and uh, evaluate and, and ask our guests. Uh, David Beatty has a question. Hey, David. Um, he uh, says to you, Michael, you clearly have a gift for idyllic realism. Um, and you mentioned some of the philosophers who influenced your work. He wants to know, is this a conscious intellectual process for you? Um, or is it more of an abstract manifest manifestation of spirit emotion that those ideas inspire? Um, hi, David. Um, and you may have been frozen again. So um, we will 
we will get him back. Uh, then let's see, we have another question that, um, I don't know, Stephen, if, if you on that have- one, I wonder, Jag, um, you mentioned earlier the Icarus painting that's in your, your home that Michael did. Uh, maybe we could use that as a working example, but if you could, uh, maybe for people who haven't seen it, just describe what it is. And yes. then while we're waiting for Michael to come back, uh, it looks like he might be back now. We could yeah. use that as a working example about Michael's process. Yeah, well, well, I think that's a great idea is to use that uh, that painting as an example. So, and you can see Michael's works. He has a wonderful Instagram account and also um, his website, Michael Newberry Art. Um, we will put it into the chat section there and also on Facebook so people can go to his site. Um, so this painting, which is in my house, again, one of the reasons I love it is I guess I really love the vivid colors and the indigo. It's just it, the saturation of the blue is, uh, is, is very, when Stephen was talking about the sensory, I mean, you can't just gaze upon a color that intense without just taking something away from it unless you're colorblind, which I guess that would have <laughs> diminished my experience of that art. But um, more importantly, you know, Icarus is a theme from Greek mythology of someone who um, had ambition and wanted to fly close to the sun and created wings for himself. Uh, but once he got too close to the sun, his wings melted and he was cast down from the heavens. And uh, the message was sort of don't be too ambitious. You know, you'll get punished for it. The world will punish you. And in Michael's beautiful Icarus landing, um, it is not Icarus, you know, being destroyed. It is Icarus with his arms out, uh, wings outstanded, extended, and he's just just feel him again just almost floating back down he's hasn't quite touched the uh, terra firma but he's about to and so um the the message what or at least i don't know if it was a message but the feeling that i get from it is that yes you can you can try and you can uh do things that are potentially dangerous but it at least is possible as michael was talking about it's possible that you can um, return safely and try another day. So Michael, maybe to talk about where you did that painting, what was the process? Did you think, oh, I'm pissed off that I always see these Icarus, you know, <laughs> flailing about and I'm gonna correct that. Um, or, or did it come well, together in a more organic process? I was also living on the beautiful island of Rhodes in Greece. So I started the painting there and I finished it there. So the colors of the water were coming from my real experience. So that's an interesting thing also going back to perception. I was actually living in Greece, seeing what the water looked like and it's so vibrant and rich and clean and this beautiful rich color. Um, so that was one, one nice connection. And then um, uh, I'm about uh, joy in my character. So to me, uh, a lot of people feel more intense emotions with sadness and depression and things. And I really don't. I don't, I don't, have, a, I don't have a really big feeling about them. I don't mind it, you know, exploring it. But when it comes to joy, I really let myself free. So I let all my emotions out. I really enjoy the experience. It's, it's profound, it motivates me, it's where I create from. 
it's 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 in my character. My grandmother used to say that um, she was hoping that I wouldn't be disappointed. I think we may have may have gotten him uh, frozen for for a second. But um, anyone who's ever been around Michael can uh, can attest that he is quite the joyous. Um, Energy. Let me uh, jump in on this and uh, just uh, adding to what you said and to what Michael is saying. So both of you have mentioned the intense uh, sensuous appeal of it. So you just look at it. And in Michael's case, he's looking at the, the, uh, the Mediterranean and loving it and wanting to, uh, to make that real in the painting. And then you as the viewer, you are responding to that. Of course, you're, you're seeing the skin tones of the, the male body and the position that he is in. But then at the same time, you started to say that there was an emotional reaction, not only to the, the beauty of the, of the colors, but to what is being represented there. So Icarus is historically a story of failure and behind the failure, uh, being too ambitious, setting your sights too high. So uh, the, the moral of the story of the traditional Icarus story going back 2,800 years or so is don't aim too high, at some sense, settle for where you happen to find yourself uh, in life. And so the idea that you can know this is Icarus and he is on the verge of success and that emotion then uh, is, is stimulated in you and then whatever, um, you're not going to build wings and fly across the Mediterranean, but whatever your goals in life are, you feel energized to uh, give them another shot, to try and to maybe set sites a little bit higher. So that is to say that the work is stimulating both perceptually and deeply emotionally. Now the other thing that I like to like to add and why I also deeply appreciate that painting is on top of all of that there is a huge amount of informational content that's uh, abstract that's built into that. Uh, you know part of it is knowing the Icarus legend uh, and then the history of that and that then is to say where uh, what Michael is doing is giving a nod to Greek culture and Greek art history, which we know is one of the great formative traditions on our own uh, contemporary culture. So the idea that the Greeks so long ago were sounding universal themes that still speak to us. Uh, but then at the same time, it's striking that when you look at the position of the painting, I'm not quite far enough to be able to do that. Uh, and I've got my shirt on, but what you have is uh, a, a a young male in this position, and that for anybody who's part of Western tradition also evokes Christianity and the crucifixion of Jesus. And this is another hugely informative tradition on Western civilization. But again, it's another story of defeat and suffering right, and sacrifice. So Jesus is trying to accomplish something religiously, but he's betrayed, he's, uh, he's, he's used as an example, and he is forced to suffer and to die right for his cause. And so what we see is Jesus suffering. Uh, but then what we have in this case is an individual who is in that exact same position, but in a moment of triumph and success. So what's built into this patient, uh, uh, painting rather than is a huge amount of philosophical content. We take the Greek tradition and its story of failure, and we take a, a Judeo-Christian tradition and its story of failure. And Michael is aware obviously of both of those, but he's taking that symbolism and those messages and, and then transforming them in a, in a positive direction. So 
the more you study it, the more you realize that there's intellectual stuff, emotional stuff, and perceptual stuff. And that's a, a beautiful example of everything coming together in one artwork. Um, Michael, just for a, you know, a curiosity, how much do some of these paintings go for? Um, half a million, um, 400,000, 300,000. And um, I'm, happy to wait for the right person, right collector, right um, activist that wants to, you know, contribute to the world a better place. And it, and actually they're modestly priced if you look at what's going on in New York or uh, paintings in, you know, in the uh, auction houses that are from successful postmodern artists. Um, and so I'm just upping my game a little bit and by raising the prices. Um, my book is also uh, going to be help, uh, just kind of showing where all the feeling and thought is coming from for my work. Yeah. So, um, Michael, you also, uh, I'm, I'm afraid of losing you again, but we were talking about um, Icarus and it's a nude and um, the paintings that we see behind you are also nudes um, and you have said that the nude in art is the greatest symbol of individuality and authenticity. So uh, I, I do want to try to get to that question when we have you, but, um, but I think we might have lost you for the moment. Um, we also have some other questions, some of them are not about art. Um, so I think some of those we could uh, take with, with Stephen, um, including, this was an interesting one. Um, it has to do with uh, Ayn Rand talking about the essence of femininity as hero worship. Um, is that something that you've given much thought to, Michael, in terms of the, the way that she saw the, the different genders and sexes, and uh, was she being metaphorical there? Stephen? Oh, I'm sorry. I thought the question was addressed to Michael. Oh, yeah. Okay. And then the question of femininity? Yes, it said, yes. why did Ayn Rand assert that the uh, essence of femininity was hero worship? Was well, that? Not, yeah, I, I think I'm not biologically and psychologically constituted to be the person to ask that question or to answer that question, right? Since I have a, a male psychological perspective on, on femininity. Uh, so I'm going to duck the question. <laughs> Okay. Well, Michael, that's a, that's a psychological question, and, and the the empirical data that one would need to have that and affirm it, uh, I, I think, is is not something that I have access to. So I could only parrot someone else's answer to it. All right. Um, well, 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 my two cents are that, um, like young tennis players, male and female, we all have our heroes, and we're so we we're so unapologetic about it. So we would play ping pong and we'd act like we were Rod Laver or Billie Jean King or whatever it was. And there was no, there was no uh, self-consciousness about it. And you'll even hear great tennis players now 
kind of talk about, oh, my hero was so-and-so. And you can see that that really motivated them. That kind of sparked their um, work ethic and their abilities and they embraced their talent and they, they kind of had a role model to compare to. So I'm not sure that it's feminine or masculine. It seems to me that young people need, uh, need really role models that excite them, that motivate them. And I think that's where a key to romanticism is. Uh, well, positive romanticism is that you have a hero and you just like kind of track it down and you want to be doing the right thing and, and live up to your talent. And th that's hero worship. And I think from the postmodern era, it's so cynical that no one has any heroes, the people that have embraced postmodernism. They have no heroes. They don't. It's, it's really, really negative stuff. You know, or they might have a hero who's a destroyer, not not someone who creates. So, so Michael, talk, um, tell, talk. We we lost you there for a moment, but we were. I was asking you about um, your views on nudes. Why you choose nudes as uh, a constant subject of your work? Um, you've talked about nudes representing authenticity and individualism. And also, um, Stephen and I were talking also about your, your Icarus landing. And you and I have talked about the nude and your treatment of nudes, that you're, you're depicting the, the um, human form without clothing. But you also are very conscious, even in doing that, about you don't want people to be distracted, right? So you, you're careful with how you are portray, portraying, you know, the... Uh, what we tend to think of as private parts, right? Because you, you don't want right. that to become in a sensory way that what, that's what people are focused on. That yes, it's, it's, it's nude, you can see their body parts, but you want them to be able to experience and integrate the entire representation. Right, well, it, in a simple way, when you would deal with visual art, as soon as you put people in clothes, you date the painting. Mm -hmm. So you step away from universality. So you get those black people, the black uh, clothes with the white collar, the Puritans. And uh, you have a king or a queen with uh, their status symbols, or you have a peasant in their rags. It's not the person's character, it's their status that's doing the talking. So it's not universal over time. And it's not about the person doesn't matter who she is or what she thinks or she's just a puppet there that's rich with all these trappings and a peasant isn't we don't feel they're suffering or anything they're just pathetic poor people and as soon as you go into the nude it's the person's we are Maybe it is, it might be also, it, it might be Zoom's way of telling us that we're almost at our hour here. Oh. So, um, so we did get, get part of what you were saying, uh, Michael, in terms of that it's a way to connect it with the, the universal values that you're trying to, that, that you are interacting with. I also think that um, uh, there's a 
a strength, you know, that uh, it's somebody, it's a figure, it's being presented, it doesn't need to have, you know, clothing to keep it warm or protect it from the elements. You're just like, this is, this is the person, there's nothing, you know, in between the, uh, the, the person and the, the viewer, so. I did have a yes. follow-up question on, on that issue, though. Uh, you know, art works at different levels of abstraction and universality, um, uh, both in terms of the themes and across time. So, but I wanted to ask Michael, suppose uh, you, know, you as a, an artist, you wanted to portray something narrower. I mean, suppose you wanted to portray a painter at work. Uh, and then, you know, being a painter is an important value and a part of who this person is. And it's not trivializing to say that this person is a painter right? or a writer at work or a business professional at the office. Uh, or you wanted to do something about romance. And so you have a couple out on the town enjoying the evening. They're going to the opera. Now, it would be totally inappropriate and artificial to have all of these people new. Right? Like the painting's not going to work in those contexts, but at the same time, then you do run into the issue of clothing them in a way that is true to the theme and true to who they are without uh, going too far down the road of dating them in terms of the costume. So how might you handle something like that? Well, this little painting back here is me naked painting. <laughs> 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 so I guess that's my answer visually. Uh, but. Um, but when you For come example, to like you've opera, been of uh, Puccini and uh, uh, Pursuit, right. and so, forth, so people are clothed. Stories. Yeah, that's right. Uh, uh, they do that by magnificently integrating so many things that they transport you into that time frame or to that world, so you're not aware of of looking at it as as uh, as a symbol or as a status. You're inside the party. You feel like you're dressed with them or part of them. Sure. And painters can do that, but it's, it's hard. It's you're working against uh, type in a way. But for movies and books, um, theater, opera, you have the music, you have the lighting, you have the characters, you have all these things coming together. Well, we were we are going to have the opportunity to uh, to also have another artist. I believe she's on next week, Agnieszka Pilat, who's yeah also a uh, an Ayn Rand fan. Uh, also paints in uh, a very um, I'd say romantic style as well, and hopefully have another opportunity to continue the conversation um, with Michael, perhaps when I am in my home in Malibu and I can show you um, the beautiful Icarus uh, landing for real, for real. And, uh, and then also want to invite all of you who are watching, first of all, thanks for showing up. Thanks for asking all of your great questions. Uh, and I want to remind all of you that we've got the Atlas Society Gala, which is coming up in LA on October 14th. Um, as many of you guys know, we did not take government bailout money, the Atlas Society. So this is our primary fundraising event of the year. Um, please come, or if you don't feel comfortable traveling, um, sponsor Michael to come, or sponsor a lot of the students that we have that are going to be there and have an opportunity to come and interact in real life, in real time, 
with Stephen, with Michael, with all of us at the Atlas Society, all of our donors uh, and board members flying in from around the world, actually. So mm -hmm. we'll look forward to seeing you there. And um, thank you both, Stephen and Michael. Really appreciate your time. Everyone also, please check out on the Atlas Society website, the waterfall section that Michael uh, has put together and curated. Um, and if you would like to also have deeper Stephen. discussion. Stephen, sorry, Stephen, um, about this, then you can join our Atlas Intellectuals that uh, Stephen generously um, helps to, doesn't host somebody comes and, and he um, delves a little deeper into some of, uh, some of the, the topics. Yeah. So. Let me just say one more thing. I, I see there's a lot of very interesting questions and comments that we didn't get to. So uh, I'd like to propose that at some point in the near future, we come back and have some, uh, some vehicle by which we address these questions. I, I know I've got some thoughts on them, but I would love to hear what Michael says about a lot of these good questions there. Great, we'll good. do. All right, thanks everyone.